You can bet every company that publishes an annual calendar will go all out on their Y2K edition. Pick one up because there's some pretty important dates in the year 2000. For example, you'll want to mark down October the 21st. That is the probable date for Game 1 of the World Series and the Atlanta Braves will be playing an American League opponent. You can bet on it. Also, circle January the 30th. That's Super Bowl Sunday. You can bet that the Falcons will be watching from home. (laughs) November 7th is another important date. We're electing a new president. This year, I'm going to start a write-in campaign for James Chapman. (laughs) James would make a great president. And don't forget Independence Day. Make sure you circle Independence Day. You know, that's May the 10th. May May the 10th is Independence Day. That's the day that the average American makes enough to finally pay Uncle Sam and he can start working for himself and his family. It takes four months and ten days of work just to pay your taxes. Independence Day, May the 10th. May the 28th is an extremely important day for your kids. The last day of school before summer vacation. July the 18th will also be a special day. You'll want to mark it down on your calendar. My wife's 28th birthday. (laughs) On August the 23rd, Kathy and I will celebrate our 20th anniversary. And if you're doing your math, that means that we were married in the second grade. Hey, she's been with me for two decades. That is quite an achievement. On October the 17th, my daughter turned 16 years old. So be careful driving on public thoroughfares after October 17th. And finally, another important date in the year 2000, September the 24th. That will be Calvary Chapel's 20th anniversary. And we're going to throw a big birthday bash to celebrate all of God's blessings and the wonders that He's worked here in our church. My point is, though, that we all have important dates on our calendar. And so does God. In the Old Testament, God published an annual calendar. He established and kept special days. Understand, when God created the universe, He established a continuum of space of mass, and of time. And He is Lord over all three. He has jurisdiction over space. He is sovereign over all matter. And He is the author of all time. Every second that ticks off the clock belongs to God. And we are responsible to God for how we go about using our time. In ancient Israel, God set up signposts to remind His people of His Lordship over space and mass and time. His Lordship over space was seen in the concept of ownership. All the land belonged to the Lord. His sovereignty over mass was seen in the offerings. A portion of the harvest, the material abundance, the firstborn of the flock was all offered to the Lord as a sacrifice. And God's Lordship over time was seen in the observance of these holy days. 
Guys, we are all literally living on borrowed time. Every second of your life belongs to the Lord. And God calls us to give back a portion of our time as a tithe of time in honor of the time that He's given us. The Hebrews were called by God to set aside special feast days, to celebrate God's goodness, God's blessing, special days of worship and rest. The feast days that God appointed were all cyclical. Different feasts occurred at different intervals throughout the year. The Sabbath was a -a once-a-week celebration. The feast of the new moon occurred monthly. There were seven annual feasts, four in the spring and three in the fall. The four spring feasts were the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Passover, the Feast of First Fruits, and the Feast of Weeks. The fall feasts included the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. There was also a Sabbath year, which occurred one year in seven, and there was special significance even attached to every 50th year. It was called the year of Jubilee. We're going to look at these different feasts tonight. In chapter 23, verses 1 and 2, God prefaces all of the feasts of Israel. He says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, The feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, these are my feasts. The Hebrew word translated feast means appointment. And these were God's appointments with his people. God blocked out on his calendar time for them. And he expected his people to block out on their calendar time for him. You don't snub God. Hey, we would be wise to pull out our calendars and set aside various times throughout the year that we can spend with God. Certainly a weekly Sabbath should be marked on your calendar. Meaningful holiday celebrations, timely getaways are important, spiritual retreats, even an annual Bible conference in January would be wise to mark down on your calendar. God says to Moses, these are my feasts. And when God makes an appointment, we had better keep it. There's a saying I heard years ago that has stuck with me. It saved me from many a bout with burnout. You'll want to write it down. Here it goes. The bow that is always bent ceases to shoot straight. Never forget that. The bow that is always bent ceases to shoot straight. If you never relax the string on your bow, if you keep a constant tension on the bow, it will eventually warp. It will lose its effectiveness. And the same is true with the human psyche. Our bodies, our minds, our spirits need frequent intervals of rest and rejuvenation in order to operate at optimal levels. It's now been proven medically that a night's sleep alone does not meet man's need for rest. During the day, our body breathes in 30 ounces of oxygen, but exhales 31 ounces. We end up one ounce short at the end of the day. 
At night, we breathe back more oxygen than we use, but not enough to make up for what we lost. We recover five-sixths of an ounce, which means that each night we end up one-sixth short. The night's rest does not replenish the day's labor. By the time six days have elapsed, we're six-sixth or a full ounce short. Now, if you work the next day, that means that you'll never recover. But if you take that seventh day off and rest and save the ounce of oxygen that you can save, then you'll balance your system and you'll catch yourself up. This is why Jesus said to us in Mark chapter 2, verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Hey, not only the Sabbath, but all the Levitical feasts were wonderful gifts from God. They were intended by God for man's benefit. We as Gentile believers no longer celebrate the same feast days as the Old Testament Hebrews. Nevertheless, we can learn from the principle. We need to set aside weekly and annual intervals to rest and to refocus and to refresh ourselves spiritually. Tonight's chapters examine each of Israel's appointments with God. The first appointment that God mentions is the weekly Sabbath. This was also the fourth of the Ten Commandments, you remember. Verse 3 tells us, Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work on it, It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. Notice the flow of the verse. Six days shall work be done, but on the Sabbath you shall do no work. You see, the Sabbath is a contrast to the rest of the week. That's why when you just treat the Sabbath like any other day, it does you no benefit. It's intended to be a contrast. The Hebrew word Sabbath means intermission. And that's what the Sabbath is. It's a break from the daily routine. It's the rest stop in the rat race. It's your time out in the big game. And you don't want to waste it. As one Jewish author put it, on the Sabbath, every day gives way to holiday. And the Jewish world rests. Six days are given to work. But the seventh is set aside to remember why you work the other six. It's a day to refocus your priorities, to remind yourself of the reason that you go out and work for a living the rest of the week. Focus on family. Focus on your worship of God and your service of God. It's a time to regroup and restore and reorientate and rejuvenate. I think two activities should be done on the Sabbath. You should pray and you should play. That reminds us why we're working the rest of the week. The Sabbath should be a day to enjoy God's blessings. And as you do, make sure that you say thanks. Today, we use the term holidays. That, though, is the combination of two English words, holy and days. You see, holidays were originally holy days. Days marked out for holy Days set aside for sacred activities, for the worship of God, for the celebration 
of His wonderful works. The problem with our Sabbaths today is that we no longer spend them on holy activities. On activities that are set apart and designed to focus us in on God and on our families. Instead, we go to Disney World. Or we go to Six Flags. And when we come home, we're more exhausted than before we went. A trip to Six Flags, and I've been several times, is not exactly what I'd call a holy convocation. Sometimes we take our Sabbaths and we do another sort of work. We labor in the yard. We toil over the car. We remodel the bathroom. Now, I know for some of you, remodeling the bathroom is a form of recreation, and I understand that. But not for me. (laughs) Not for me. That's work with a capital W. And I don't do that. As a matter of fact, when Kathy wants to do that, I take several Sabbaths over the course of the week. In other words, what some of us do on the Sabbath is we just find other ways to stress out. That's not the point either. Verse 3 tells us that the Sabbath is set aside for a solemn or a serious rest. On the Sabbath, you should be as serious about your rest as you are about your work the other six days. It's not a day for inactivity. But it is a day to do something that will rejuvenate rather than drain in further tax. Hey, if you were to make an appointment for counseling with Pastor James, and the whole time you were talking to him, trying to explain your problems, he was sitting there working on a model airplane, you'd be a little ticked off, wouldn't you? Just a little. At least he could have the courtesy to ask you to help him with the model airplane. But this is how God feels. When he makes an appointment with us, only to have us ignore him and carry on without him. We need to set aside times to strengthen our grip on God. The spring feasts began with the Passover. In Exodus chapter 12, on the eve of their exit from Egypt, God gave Moses directions for how to celebrate the Passover. The festivities, of course, revolved around a meal. They ate bitter herbs, reminding them of their bitter years of Egyptian bondage. The roasted lamb recalled the lamb's blood that had been spread on the doorposts and the thresholds of the home. Unleavened bread spoke of the faith of the Hebrews who trusted in God's promise, so much so that they didn't even give the bread time to rise. It was unleavened bread. The Passover is celebrated on the 14th day of the first month on the Jewish calendar, or in the month called Nisan. It's in the first month of the new year because it symbolizes a new start for the nation. On our calendar, Passover occurs usually in the latter part of March or in the early part of April. Of course, Jesus was crucified on Passover, or on Nisan the 14th. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, there Paul writes to us, For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Jesus is our Passover lamb. The Passover all spoke to us. It was a picture of the work of Jesus Christ. When His blood is spread on the doorposts or the thresholds of your heart, 
The judgment of God passes over you. You are delivered from sin just as the Hebrews were delivered from death there in Egypt. On the night of the Passover, just before he was crucified, Jesus gave new meaning to the age-old celebration of Passover. He took the unleavened bread, he took the cup of wine, and he called it my body, my blood. Jesus took a 1,500-year-old tradition and he gave it a revolutionary new meaning. And today, you and I, through the blood and the body of Jesus Christ, can have a new start. It can be a new year for you when you accept Jesus Christ as your Passover. Leviticus chapter 23, verse 6, mentions the next spring feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And for the seven days following the Passover, the Hebrews ate only unleavened bread. Throughout the Bible, leaven is a type of sin. And so following their deliverance from Egypt, they were to spend seven days ridding themselves of what represented sin. Guys, when Jesus saves you, he takes you just as you are and right where you're at. Isn't that wonderful? (laughs) He loves you that much to take you just as you are and right where you're at. But he also loves you so much that he doesn't leave you that way. And we can also be thankful for that. He wants to clean up our lives. He wants to rid our lives of leaven. And that's what this feast symbolized. For seven days after the Passover, they ate only unleavened bread. And you and I, after we accept Christ as our Passover, should live an unleavened life. A life without sin. It's been said a believer isn't sinless. But he or she will sin less and less and less. Will grow. The third spring feast was the feast of first fruits. On the day after the Sabbath, following the Passover, the priest would bring the initial yield of the barley harvest and he would offer it to God. This was the people's way of saying thanks to God for providing their needs. This is what we do when we tithe our income. We give back to God the first fruits of what he's given us. Now, the priest made this offering in a very interesting way. You'll read in the section that he waved it before the Lord. This is also called elsewhere a wave offering or a heave offering. He would heave it up before the Lord. And I've been told that he would take the bundle and he would wave it first up and down. And then he would wave it side to side. And he would repeat intermittently those two actions, the the vertical and then the horizontal. And in the wave offering, he was actually forming a cross, which is very, very interesting. The wave offering was a picture of Jesus Christ, as was another element of the Feast of First Fruits. You see, Jesus was resurrected on the day of first fruits, on the day following the Sabbath after the Passover. This is why 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 23 calls Jesus the first fruits of the resurrection. In other words, Jesus 
was God's initial yield of his resurrection harvest. He was the first fruits of the resurrection. You and I will one day have a resurrected body just like Jesus. But Jesus came first. He was the first fruits of God's resurrection, first to overcome death and inherit an incorruptible body. The last of the spring feasts was the Feast of Weeks. And we're told in chapter 23, verse 16, count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. The Greek word for 50 is Pentecost, which is why this feast is called the Feast of Pentecost in the New Testament. On our calendar today, the Feast of Pentecost occurs in late May or in early June. This feast celebrated the end of the spring harvest. This time the priest would bring two loaves of grain to the Lord. And unlike the Passover, these loaves were baked with leaven. Jewish tradition says that the giving of the law also took place 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits, and so its anniversary was celebrated on Pentecost. It's interesting that in the very same year that Jesus fulfilled the Passover, dying for us, the Feast of First Fruits, rising from the dead for us, he also fulfilled the symbolism in the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. For it was at Pentecost that the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church. And guess what happened? A harvest of souls began. It was a celebration of harvest. On that day, God, the lawgiver, began to write his law in the hearts of men. On the anniversary of the Mosaic law, God started the new covenant, the new law, whereby he transforms us from the inside out. And the two loaves that were presented to God represented both Jews and Gentiles, the two loaves that were born into the kingdom of God on the day of Pentecost. Unleavened loaves, in fact. For God accepts us, even though we're still stained with sin. The four spring feasts were a prophetic picture of the first coming of Jesus Christ. The three fall feasts occur in the same month. The seventh month on the Jewish calendar, or Tishri. The equivalent of our late September early October. And the first fall feast was the Feast of Trumpets. Today the Jews call the Feast of Trumpets Rosh Hashanah, or the head of the year. Before their exodus from Egypt, the Jewish year began in Tishri. And for civil purposes, they maintained that distinction. Nisan was the fourth, was the first month of the year for religious purposes. And so they, they basically had two new years. On the religious calendar, it was Nisan after the Passover, but on the civil calendar, it remained Tishri. On the Feast of Trumpets, the priest would sound the shofar or the ram's horn. And I brought my ram's horn with me tonight. I got this when I was in Israel. You see this? And I thought I would, I would give it a blow tonight and kind of give you a taste of, you know, what it sounds like, you know, when you hear the blow of the shofar. So be ready. Can't make me laugh. 
can't blow a shofar laughing. That is not what it sounded like. Can't take it back. I got to go to Israel to take it back. ram was a lousy sacrifice. I know that now. That's not what it actually sounded like. It was this deep, strong blast. And it was a signal to the workers to come up out of the fields. The the harvest was over. And to gather there at the tabernacle for a holy convocation. The Feast of Trumpets marked the end of the fall harvest. Next came the Day of Atonement. And on the tenth day of Tishri, the Hebrews were to do no work. They were to make atonement for their sin. And on this day, the sacrifices and rituals that we discussed last week in chapter 16 took place. This was the one day of the year when the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctum of the tabernacle, where the glory of God dwelt in visible, tangible form. It was there that the high priest would enter in and he would sprinkle the blood on the lid of the ark or the mercy seat. When he exited, he would lay his hands on the head of the scapegoat. He would confess the sins of the people. Then the goat would be led off into the wilderness. It never returned. It was all a vivid reminder, a demonstration to the people that what God forgives, He also forgets. Isn't that beautiful? When the Moravian missionaries tried to witness to the Alaskan Eskimos, they were unable to come up with a word for forgiveness in the Eskimo language. And so they had to invent a word. And this is what they came up with. Ishu Maji Jojunk Aner Elk Milk. Say that ten times fast. Ishu Maji Jojunk Aner Elk Milk. Remember that in case you get an opportunity to witness to an Eskimo. But here's what that word means. It means not being able to think about it anymore. Isn't that a beautiful word for forgiveness? Hey, when God forgives your sin, He forgets it. You don't. That's the problem. But God does. And so if God's forgotten, stop reminding Him. (laughs) Accept His forgiveness. Rejoice in His forgiveness. That you are forgiven, that the sin has been forgotten, that God has given you a brand new start. Give yourself a new start. Accept His forgiveness. Realize that you're a new creature in Christ. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. I love Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 34. The Lord tells us, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. Hey, what God forgives, He forgets. The Day of Atonement is referred to by the Jews as Yom Kippur. In Hebrew, Yom means day. Kippur means covering or atonement. 
And this was the day that the sin of the nation Israel was covered for another year. The individual Hebrews were told to observe the day in a serious, somber fashion. Verse 32 says, It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict your souls on the ninth day of the month at evening, from evening to evening. And that's how the Jews reckoned their day. The Jewish day started at 6 o'clock p.m. and went into the next 6 o'clock p.m. It went from evening to evening. You remember in Genesis... God said in the evening and the morning were the first day. That's how he reckoned it. Evening first and then morning. The whole story of redemption begins in darkness. But God has shined a light into the darkness. The darkness comes first. The light comes afterwards. God's grace. And you shall celebrate your Sabbath. This was to be a day of confession. And repentance. And as he puts it here, afflicting the soul. It's sad what has happened today to the Jewish Day of Atonement. Jesus is the fulfillment of this feast. In 1 John chapter 2 verse 2, Jesus is called our propitiation or literally our mercy seat. He is the place where the blood has been applied so that we can find forgiveness. Jesus is also our scapegoat. Confess your sin and trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And God will not only forgive your sin, but he will forget it once and for all. And God wanted the Jews to take this day and use it to cultivate a heart of repentance and a heart of confession. It was a day to humble themselves It was a day to remind themselves of their need for a sacrifice. But over the years, the Jews did just the opposite. They viewed the day as a substitute for a sacrifice. They believed that it was through their fasting and their afflicting that they could save themselves. And they came to view the afflicting of their soul as itself payment for their sin. They even used the day... To remind God of their good works. That was not the point at all. It was to remind them of a need for sacrifice. We've learned it before. Back in chapter 17, verse 11. It is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. The final fall feast was the Feast of Tabernacles. And this was a fun feast. Verse 40 commands, You shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You were to rejoice. It was You're commanded to rejoice. I think that would be a good thing to be commanded to rejoice for the next seven days. I command you to rejoice for the next seven days. If we catch any of you frowning, we'll just tell you to rejoice again. For the whole week, the Hebrews were to live outdoors in tents. This was also called the Feast of Booths. They'd make little booths or little tabernacles out in the backyard. And the whole family, kids, mom and dad, it was a fun time. They'd all move out into the backyard and they'd live in the little tent for the whole week. Even today, observant Jews will build the booth and all in their backyard and they'll go out and they'll, they'll spend the week there. Verse 43 tells us why. That your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. 
You see, the Feast of Tabernacles was a celebration of God's provision for the Hebrews while they were in the wilderness. You remember all that God did for them. He provided them manna every morning. He brought meat, the quail, into the camp every night. For 40 years, their sandals never wore out. God gave them victory over their enemies. He even brought water from the rock and quenched the thirst of the people. And for the seven days, they would live out in the backyard and they would remember how God had provided during their wilderness wanderings. In the days of Jesus, this one particular miracle of bringing water from the rock was commemorated in the temple on the Feast of Tabernacles. The priest at a designated time would pour water out upon the altar. And it was there, according to John chapter 7, verse 37, that just as the priest went to douse the water upon the altar, Jesus stood up in front of the crowd and he shouted out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. One commentator calls this the day that Jesus shouted. And what made him shout? Oh, he saw us thirsting. He saw our needy, parched souls in a worldly wilderness of emptiness and unhappiness and dissatisfaction and restlessness. And Jesus sees you tonight. And he shouts, If any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Jesus is the rock in our wilderness from which water will flow to quench your thirst, to satisfy your deepest needs, to cause your heart to rejoice, not just for seven days, but for all eternity. Here now is where the plot really thickens. For if the spring feasts were all prophetic of Jesus' first coming, Is it possible that the fall feasts speak and are prophetic of Jesus' second coming? Now, during the summer months, there were no feasts. And prophetically, that may be where we are now. God is working with the church, not Israel. For the Hebrews, it's summertime. But the scripture is clear at the end of the age or at the end of the year in the analogy. God will return to Israel, and he will accomplish his purposes. And how will God's end-time work begin? (laughs) With the blast of the shofar. With a trumpet blast. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 tells us that a trumpet will sound, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and we which are alive and remain will be caught up with Jesus in the clouds. The rapture of the church. That's how it all begins. The trumpet. Remember the Feast of Trumpets. That was the day that the priest blew the shofar to call the workers out of the field. The harvest will be over. Today we are working. We are involved in this end time harvest of souls. But one day the harvest will be over and the trumpet is going to blast. And we're going to be called up to the heavenly tabernacle and enter into a holy convocation. It could be 
that the rapture of the church will take place on Rosh Hashanah or the Feast of Trumpets. It seems that his first coming, Jesus fulfilled the spring feast to the very day. It could be that at his second coming, he fulfills the fall feasts to the very day. In the year 2000, if you're curious, Rosh Hashanah occurs on September the 30th. And hey, no man knows the day or the hour that Jesus will return. But I always wake up on Rosh Hashanah with a little extra anticipation. (laughs) September 30th, mark it down. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest came out of the Holy of Holies. And he appeared to the people to let them know that their sacrifice had been accepted. And this is what happens when Jesus returns to earth at the end of the Great Tribulation. The high priest will leave the Holy of Holies and he will show himself to the nation. It could well be that Jesus' return to earth will take place on the Day of Atonement. And the Feast of Tabernacles, that could well be prophetic of the Kingdom Age where God will supernaturally provide for His people, just as He did in the wilderness. The millennial kingdom will be a period of great rejoicing. In fact, Zechariah 14, verse 16, teaches us that during Christ's thousand-year reign on the earth, all the nations will come up to Jerusalem once a year to worship the King and keep a feast. Guess which one? The Feast of Tabernacles. Granted, this is all speculation, But if the four spring feasts were prophetic of Jesus' first advent, it's possible that the three fall feasts are prophetic of his second coming. Two more feasts are discussed in chapter 25. Just as there is a Sabbath day, there is also a Sabbath year. One year out of seven, where the people were to allow the land to rest. Verse 4 says, neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard. Now, it's interesting that modern agriculture has now scientifically verified the wisdom of God's law. When the land is allowed to lie dormant for a time, that dormancy restores the nutrients and revives the mineral content of the soil. Fail to let the land rest periodically and you rape it of its nutrients. Today, farmers practice crop rotation to give the land an opportunity to rejuvenate itself. Verses 18 through 22 answer the question that I'm sure entered every Jewish mind. If we're going to let the land rest in the seventh year, then how are we going to eat? Good question. But God promises to make the sixth year so prosperous that afterwards you'll have enough to eat for three additional years. In other words, if the Jews are obedient to God's law, if they trust him, then they're going to live high on the hog. Well, maybe not high on the hog. I guess the Jews don't live high on the hog. They're going to be living in high cotton. How about that? Here's the hurdle, though, that you have to get over. If you're going to observe a Sabbath day, let alone a Sabbath year. Do you trust God 
to do more with to do more in his six than you can do in your seven? I want to say that again so you'll have it clear. Do you trust God to do more in his six than you can do in your seven? This is also the hurdle when it comes to tithing our money. Do we trust God to do more with the 90% than we can do with the 100%? (laughs) That's where it gets down to, doesn't it? How strong is our faith? How much do we really trust the Lord? Another feast is discussed in chapter 25, and that is the year of Jubilee. This was a Sabbath of seven-year periods. After seven sevens came the Jubilee. The concept of a year of Jubilee is unparalleled in history. It was uniquely Hebrew, and it was definitely ingenious. Verse 10 describes its chief feature. Each of you shall return to his possession, and each of you shall return to his family. In other words, all debts will be paid, and all properties will be returned. Now, when the Hebrews enter the promised land, God is going to portion out the land to each of the twelve tribes. The land belonged to God, and He loaned a parcel to each family in Israel. Of course, though, over time... The land would be sold, some would be bought. Oftentimes, land would be put up as collateral on a loan, and when a man couldn't pay his debts, the land would be confiscated and lost by the family. But the loss was never permanent. For in the year of Jubilee, all land returned to its original occupant. And that's why whenever a land transaction came down, its value was determined by the number of years remaining until the year of Jubilee. Another practice in ancient Israel was slavery. And people think of slavery as cruel. And it certainly was in American history, but not among the Jews. When a person couldn't pay his debts, instead of filing for bankruptcy, he could work off his debt by becoming a slave to his creditor. But in the year of Jubilee, all debts were canceled, and he became a free man. Think of the practical impact of this law. Most people would live through at least one Jubilee. And in that Jubilee year, all of their debts would be canceled. They would get a second chance on life. If the family had lost their land through the slothfulness of some relative... They could get it back. An injustice could be rectified and inequity could be solved. They would have a chance to begin again. And this is beautiful. This is a a brilliant idea. For the Jubilee would never hinder the industriousness of a person. It wouldn't prohibit a person from trying to better himself financially through hard work and effort. But it did provide a way to even out some inequities and to address some cruelties and to restore everyone and provide everyone a real opportunity uh, to get ahead, to be successful. Now, as clever a welfare system as the Jubilee was, its real significance is prophetic. For think about it for a moment. The original and ultimate owner of this earth 
is God. But God gave dominion over the earth to who? To us. But what did we do? We sinned. We forfeited our dominion over to Satan. Three times in the Gospel of John, Satan is referred to as the ruler of this world. But one day, God is going to celebrate the Jubilee. And all the land is going to revert back to its original owner. Today, Satan may control this earth, but it doesn't belong to him. When Jesus returns, Satan will be evicted and the world will return to its rightful owner. When Jesus returns, all debts will be canceled. The slaves will be freed and property will return to its rightful owner, God. (laughs) I got one thing to say. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let me bring up another point regarding God's calendar. We know it's full of sevens. The seventh day, the seventh year, the year after the seventh, seventh seven. There are even periods in Scripture of seven times 70 years. Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy is an example. The Babylonian captivity was another example. It lasted 70 years because the Hebrews had neglected to observe the Sabbath year 70 straight times. It's conjecture. But what if we took this one step further? Seven times a thousand years. Or seven millenniums. Based on the assumption that Adam and Eve were created about 6,000 years ago, we are now coming to the end of the sixth millennium. From Adam to Abraham was about 2,000 years. From Abraham to Christ, about 2,000 years. And from Jesus to us today, of course, is about 2,000 years. That's a total of about 6,000 years. Now, the Bible mentions... That when Jesus returns, he is going to reign over the earth for how long? For a thousand years. A Sabbath millennium. But when would that Sabbath millennium occur? It would occur after the end of the six millenniums of work and labor and of man's rule on the earth. If God has chosen to fulfill his plans in seven millenniums, then Jesus' millennial kingdom would be the seventh. And since we are getting to the close of the sixth, then Jesus would be coming back very, very soon. Now that's conjecture. But that's a pretty intriguing idea and it gets me a little excited. And understand, the idea is not just stirred up by millennial fever. It has been believed by many Christians, even from the first century. Irenaeus, who lived in 150 A.D., wrote, For the day of the Lord is as a thousand years, and in six days created things were complete. It is evident, therefore, that they will come to an end at the six thousand years. Now, of course... The year 2000 is arbitrary. I went to the Jerusalem Post website this past week. And the Jewish year, which supposedly goes back and counts from creation, 
According to their calendar, we're now in the year 5,760. But whether we're 240 years until the end of the sixth millennium or whether we're two more months away from the end of the sixth millennium, the point is, is that we're getting close to the beginning of the seventh millennium, which could well be the Lord's millennium, the kingdom of Jesus Christ on the earth. Now, there are quite a few other issues covered in tonight's chapters, and let me hit on a few of these issues as briefly as I can. In chapter 24, verses 1 through 9, instructions are given for the priestly oil and for the showbread. And what I want you to note from that is the care that was taken in the worship of God. Great detail was entered into in order to do everything proper, everything right, and I think we should be prepared when it comes to worship. I think sloppy worship displeases God. No, we don't have to be beautiful. God loves, you know, to hear a joyful noise. But whether we can sing good or sing bad, we should sing our best. Whether we do good or do bad, we can do our best, try our best. And I think the care that was given to the oil, to the showbread, the detail that was followed shows that God wants us to be prepared when it comes to our worship and our service of Him. In chapter 24, verses 1 through 16, Moses runs into a situation that was not covered by the letter of the law. A man had blasphemed the holy name of God. And what was the appropriate penalty? Verse 12 says, They put him in custody, that the mind of the Lord might be shown to them. Here's an issue not covered in the word of God, and so Moses seeks the mind of God. And this is good wisdom. If you're trying to make a decision not covered in the word of God, make sure you seek the mind of God. Ask God for wisdom, and he promises to give it. And as we talked about this morning, Moses followed three steps. He desired to know. He wasn't haughty. He wanted to know. He realized that God's thoughts are not our thoughts. And he wanted to know the will of God. He delayed action until he knew. He was patient. And he depended upon God's grace. Desire, delay, depend. And God will show you his will. And I like the fact that Moses looked for the mind of the Lord to be shown. It wasn't up to him to muster some Herculean effort to discern it. God's will would have never been known had it not been shown. (laughs) Hey, Moses put his trust in the Lord's ability to speak more than in his ability to hear. And God will lead and guide you if you simply ask. You don't have to fast for 400 days and beat yourself and go through torture and so forth to hear God's voice. Just ask. Humble yourself. Get away. Ask the Lord. He'll speak to your heart. He wants you to know His will. In verse 13, God speaks and orders this blasphemous boy stoned to death. Blasphemy gets the death penalty. Defamation of God's name is a serious crime. You see, anything that desensitizes our reverence for God will eventually lead to a corruption of the morals that come from God. 
erode disrespect for God, and you will there'll be no respect for His law and for His will. Blasphemy opens a Pandora's box. And with the power of the Holy Spirit, we need to eliminate the blasphemers. Not by stoning them, but by getting them saved. We have the power of the Holy Spirit to change their hearts. And that's what God wants us to do. Leviticus 24, verses 17 through 22, describes the law of tit for tat. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. In other words, the state or the government's punishment should be equal and fitting to the crime. Chapter 25, verses 35 through 38, forbids charging a brother interest on a loan. And I wish my loan officer that's holding my mortgage were here tonight. I'm not sure this applies to companies and businesses, but I think it does apply in personal relationships. And I think the same generosity shown in Israel needs to be practiced among brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. In Leviticus chapter 26, God tells the Hebrews what will happen if they obey the law. What will happen if they disobey the law? And these blessings and curses become prophetic. And with the hindsight of history, we can now see clearly the reliability of God's promises. You can chart the history of the Jewish people with these blessings and curses that were told to them in advance here in Leviticus chapter 26. In verse 3, the Lord says to Israel, If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, then I will give rain in its season. And on and on the blessings go. And they're listed from verse 4 through verse 13. Then in verse 14, the Lord says to Israel, But if you do not obey me and do not observe all these commandments, and if you despise my statutes, or if your soul abhors my judgments, so that you do not perform all my commandments, but break my covenant, I also will do this to you. I will even appoint terror over you, wasting disease and fever, which shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of heart. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. And on and on the curses go. From verse 16 through verse 39. If they refuse to keep God's covenant, eventually the nation will be overthrown and scattered, which is exactly what happened. In 70 AD, the Romans sacked Jerusalem and drove the Jews into foreign countries where they have remained for the last 1900 years. It's only in our generation that the Jews have begun to return to their homeland. In verse 40, God tells Israel that not even their own failures are insurmountable. He says, when they bottom out, if they'll confess their sin, if they'll humble their hearts, he'll remember his covenant and his promises toward them. He won't abandon them, and he won't abandon you either. When you bottom out, if you'll call upon the name of the Lord, he'll remember his covenant toward you. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Chapter 27 deals with the practice of redemption. And this is a way that the Hebrews had of presenting their offerings to God. A parent might dedicate their child to the Lord. 
Or someone might bring an animal to the Lord or even give his house or his field to the Lord. Now, the Lord seldom took possession of these offerings. God was not into stockpiling animals and houses and fields and opening up a nursery for kids. So here's what happened. You would give your house to the Lord and then you would buy it back. And the money you spent to buy it back would then become your offering to support the service of God. You could do this with your child. You give your child to the Lord and then you buy him back. You pay the redemption price. You give your field to the Lord and then you could buy him back and pay the redemption price. And this was simply a way of giving an offering to the Lord. You could give pretty much anything you'd like to the Lord and then you would buy it back according to the redemption price that was set by the priest. If anyone wants to give their house to the church tonight, we'd be happy to take title and let you buy it back. That would be cool. Be a great way to give an offering to the Lord. That's what they did in ancient Israel. It's interesting, in 1 Samuel chapter 1, a woman by the name of Hannah gave her son Samuel to the Lord. But she didn't redeem him. You remember, instead, Samuel served the Lord alongside the high priest Eli. Usually, a parent would buy the child back, but not Hannah. She literally gave him to the Lord. It reminds me of the night that Pastor James went home after church and forgot one of his daughters. (laughs) Just left her at church. And it wasn't until he got home and asked Donna where his daughter was. She said, I don't have her. Do you have her? I don't have her that they realized that they had left her up at the church. And if I had been thinking, we could have charged him a redemption price. (laughs) Another missed opportunity. God has taken Israel out of Egypt to plant this nation in the land of Canaan. But before they marched northward, He brings them to Mount Sinai to teach them how to be his people, how to live and how to worship him. And this is what we've studied now in Leviticus. But now they're ready. They have the lessons. And in the book of Numbers, we begin to chart their journey from Mount Sinai to the Canaanite border town known as Kadesh Barnea. And this is what we'll pick up next week in the book of Numbers. Did you enjoy Leviticus? Great. That's an accomplishment when a congregation can say that they enjoyed Leviticus. Lord, we thank you. We are enjoying all of your word. Lord, we are amazed at your wisdom and your insights and your love toward us, Lord. And Lord, though your word is so challenging, Lord, we we know and sense that even the challenging parts are laced with love, that you care about us, and that 
your heavy instructions are intended to make our load lighter. We thank you for your word. We commit ourselves afresh tonight, Lord, to study it, to read it, to apply ourselves to it, and then to take your word and apply it to our lives. Continue to work in our hearts, Lord, over the next months as we study the scriptures. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, Amen.